0: Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units, Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahazuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom." Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks,
1: Caroline. Um, did well with that reading again. It's going to be like that every week. We're going to be seeing, listening, how people read out these names. Um, you did really well. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks, um, let me just pray for us before we we get into our passage here in Esther. Uh, Lord, thank you uh, that you have given us your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray now that you would uh, just help us to focus on what you would have say to us and hear uh, what you would have say. Um, Teach us, Lord. um, Challenge us. Uh, And I pray that uh, our hearts would be um, just stirred to to enjoy you and glorify you and praise you more uh, because of what we see here and we hear here today. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, I'm going to start this morning um, in a way that, you know, I have to be careful here because I'm getting into territory that I don't know a lot about, and you're going to see why. Because my granny, she was a, a brilliant embroiderer, brilliant at weaving, and uh, you can tell why I'm getting into territory that um, is dangerous, because I don't have a clue. I even had to ask Jane, uh, my wife. Um, there was a, a circular wooden thing that Granny used to use. What, what is that? She said it was a loom. It's a, a weaving loom or an embroidery loom. And uh, I used to, um, whenever I was growing up, remember looking at Granny's uh, weaving or embroidery, the loom that she was working from. And there was often no kind of discernible design in what she was doing. It seemed like random threads, just an incoherent picture as she was working on it. And she used to say to me, um, she the being the embroiderer, the weaver who was in control of it, she used to say, just you wait, just wait till it's finished and then you'll see what I'm doing. And it was only whenever the work was finished and you could see it from the other side, from the front rather than the back, that each thread was seen in relation to all the others woven together into this coherent picture that made total sense. It was only then that you could see the beauty of the picture which was created and the skill of my granny in making it. Now, as I was thinking about Esther 1, 2, and 3 that we've done so far and where we're at in our story as we continue this short study through the book of Esther, I was reminded of that, thinking back, back to that, because we said last week that the book of Esther is one which helps us when we find ourselves asking questions like, where are you, God? Or what are you doing in our world or in my life right now? Remember, God is uh, never mentioned in this book. He seems entirely absent. And there are times maybe in our lives, times when we look at the world out there and what's going on, and it appears to us the picture, like we're looking at the back Of my granny's loom. The events which are taking place, they just seem random, chaotic, incoherent even. We struggle to understand what God is doing, what good could possibly come of the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. We might even look at the apparent mess of it all threads hanging everywhere in our lives and we come to the conclusion that God has just left us to go on with things on our own. But Esther is a book that's teaching us to see and to believe and to trust in God as the master weaver. To see and to trust that he is the one who is in complete control of all things. Nothing happens without him having ordained it. Each thread being woven together by him one after another, which in the end produces a beautiful and glorious picture, all according to his perfect design. Esther's a story that's teaching us to see that God is at work and he is working all things together in the lives of those who trust in him. Every thread every dark and difficult trial, as well as every good and happy blessing, we're going to all together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his good and perfect purposes. God's plans for his people can never be thwarted. Now if you've missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it again, not just because I was preaching, but because it's, uh, it's helpful as we go through this book. Because this is a, a story, it's a narrative. So it's one that as we, as we go through, you're going to get the pieces of the story being built up one after another. But to help you out, I'm going to do a, a previously an Esther. You know the way they do in, in some good TV shows, Line of Duty. I always love it when they do that. Bring you up to speed on what you've missed or what you've seen last week. Um, and chapters one and two. It pits the empire of the world, this vast worldly kingdom, against God's kingdom and God's people. And in chapter one, we saw the apparent greatness and the strength of this worldly kingdom. It was a, a, a picture of power. And it's a picture of power led by the most powerful man in the world at this time, led by King Ahasuerus. But it's a picture of power but not without signs of weakness. There were the cracks beginning to show in this worldly kingdom. We saw the foolishness of this king. And the emptiness of those values upon which his kingdom is built. And in chapter 2, we saw God's people. God's people seen as, as the weak and vulnerable people in this worldly kingdom that they are. Um, we're introduced to two Jews living um, in this kingdom... Uh, in Susa, called Mordecai and Esther. And it was a picture of weakness as we looked at these two, but not without signs of God's providence. We were asked, left asking the question, is everything as it seems in the face of it, is there, or is there something else going on underneath all this? Something else happening behind the veil? Someone else pulling the strings? Not King Ahasuerus. And today... We're moving into the main plot of our story where we've seen Esther has just been crowned queen of Persia. She's at the very center of this worldly empire. And today, as the plot starts to thicken, what we're going to see is that God in his providence doesn't cushion his people from difficulties in this world. He doesn't protect us from the wickedness of evil men and women. And as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, we should expect injustice, hostility, and hatred. But in the face of all that, we can endure as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, knowing that God is still working for our good. So the end of chapter two, we read verses 19 to 23 again because they kind of set up what's to come now in our story. And we see Mordecai, He overhears this plot to assassinate the king, King Ahasuerus. And he then, being the good good citizen that he is, he informs Esther, who's the queen, who can inform the king because of the position that she's now in. The plan is investigated. The men who are um, the ones taking out this or carrying out this plan, they're uh, found to be guilty and they are killed. And Mordecai is the one who's the savior. He's the one who saves the king's life. And in verse 23, the king ensures a permanent record is made of what Mordecai has done so that no one ever forgets his heroics. But at the beginning of chapter 3, we get a surprising twist in our story. It tees up something in the plot which isn't going to be resolved until chapter 6. Here's what it says in verse 1. After these things, king Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. This is the moment in the pantomime, if you've been to the panto, whenever the villain walks out and everybody starts to boo and hiss. Because we're going to see that Haman is that villain. And he's the one who at the start of chapter 3 gets the promotion. He essentially becomes the second in command in this kingdom. While Mordecai, the one who saved the king, he goes unrewarded. We can't believe the injustice here. We're screaming from our seats, you've got the wrong man, King Ahasuerus. It's Mordecai who deserved this promotion, not Haman. The writer wants us to feel the injustice, but he also wants us to see that as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, we should expect injustice. We should expect things to go in ways that just don't seem fair. Mordecai is a man who is living and working for the good of the empire. He's following the the command and obeying the command that God gave to his people in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, when they went into exile and he said to them, he commanded them to seek the welfare of the city where he had sent them into exile. And that is what we see Mordecai doing. He has been a loyal servant, serving the city, protecting the king, but his faithful service go completely unrewarded. Haman the Agagite is the one who is exalted. And as we're gonna see, he really isn't the kind of man who deserves this recognition. But isn't that often the way in our world? Undeserving men and women promoted to places of prominence, prospering in the kingdom of the world. And sometimes, as God's people, we can find ourselves Asking God, wondering in his providence, what are you doing, God? Saying things like, this just isn't fair. This is wrong. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Why is this happening to me? Why is that happening to them? Maybe there are things in your life things you've experienced before, injustices you've faced in work or school or university, maybe it's in your family life, maybe it's with a circle of friends, you've been left in those situations asking some of those questions. Your efforts always seem to be overlooked or taken for granted. You're constantly choosing to work for the good of others, to be a blessing to others, to the detriment of yourself but no one ever really seems to care. You're never given the credit that you feel that you deserve. Or maybe you're even being punished for choosing to do the right and honorable thing. And you find yourself asking, why is this happening to me? This just isn't fair. Well, this isn't something new to us in our time. We see right throughout the Old Testament, these are age old questions. Throughout the Psalms, we see the psalmist asking questions like this. God, what are you doing? Why is it that men and women in this world seem to prosper and God's people seem to be underneath everything? Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12, he asks the Lord, why do the wicked prosper and why do those who are treacherous thrive? As Christians living in the kingdom of the world, we shouldn't expect our righteous deeds to, go, uh, to be rewarded. We shouldn't expect people to praise us for being a blessing or for serving them or for living in godly ways. But our desire and our motivation to live in godly ways and to be out there in the world serving other people, it's, it's never about the adoration or praise of others anyway though. We don't look to be a blessing or to serve others as a way to receive anything from them as a reward. We do it because we are commanded by God to do it. We follow the example of Jesus in this. The one who came to this world not to be served, but to serve. He didn't receive the praise and the adulation and the recognition of people in this world. He was rejected by this world. But he lived to please his Father in heaven. Living for him and for his glory. And what matters to us as Christians living in the kingdom of the world is that when no one else sees God does. When no one else gives us recognition, we can be sure that God will. The written record that he keeps is not like that of King Ahasuerus in verse 23, one which is quickly forgotten about. God doesn't miss a thing. Hebrews 12 reminded us when we studied the book of Hebrews that we have come in this new covenant through Jesus Christ. We have come to God who is the judge of all. And we can be sure that he is the only righteous and just judge in this world. And that one day he will reward his people for their faithfulness and their trust in living for him. Esther chapter 2 teaches us that as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, we should expect injustice. That's what Mordecai experienced. And secondly, Esther chapter 3 teaches us that as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, we should expect hostility and hatred. That's what we see Mordecai and his people, God's people, experience here. Look at verse 2. We see the kind of man that Haman the Agagite really is a man who is in love with himself, a man filled with a sense of self importance, and everyone is commanded to bow down and pay Haman homage. And everyone does it, except Mordecai. Now, we're going to think later on about the reasons why Mordecai doesn't bow down. But Mordecai, in this decision, soon becomes the target of Haman's relentless hatred. Not just against him, but against his entire nation. Haman learns that Mordecai is a Jew and that he has refused to bow down to him and pay him the respect that he thinks he deserves. And look at how he reacts the end of verse 5. He was filled with fury. He wants revenge, not just against Mordecai. He wants more than that. That's not enough. Look at verse six. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Notice this as we go through. Haman and Mordecai pitted against each other in this story. Almost like God's kingdom and God's people pitted against the kingdom of the world. Notice as well that it keeps referring to Mordecai as the Jew. And it keeps talking about the people of Mordecai being God's people, the Jewish people. Haman on the other side of that. And what Haman wants is a genocide of the Jewish nation. It's nothing short of ethnic cleansing. He wants to get rid of them once and for all. And as chapter 3 develops, we watch in horror as Haman, cold and calculating, he schemes and plots how he's going to do this. In verse 7, Haman casts purr, that's he casts lots, as the superstitious, godless man that he is. See, he's not learning the lesson that we are being forced to learn here as we read the book of Esther that neither pagan gods or blind chance cover all things in this world, but rather the sovereign Lord of all. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is in control. All things are in his hands. We know what Haman doesn't, that even the casting of lots is ordained by God because here's what it says in Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's hand is in all things. And so God is the one who ordains where this lot will fall as it finally lands on a day 11 months from the day. And Haman, he gets to work on executing his horrific plan. Look at Haman's tactics as he goes before the king. He's so calculated in what he says. He knows how to push all the right buttons on this king. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice he doesn't even, he doesn't give any specifics about these people and who they are. He just says, their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. This is complete lies. One man has not bowed down to Haman. And he says that the entire nation is going against the king and his laws, that they have different laws. uh, Mordecai has been living for the good of this kingdom. He appeals, Haman, to the king's pride here, implying that the Jews are indifferent to this king and his laws. And he knows that King Ahasuerus will lap all this up because it's all about him. His kingdom is all about his own gain and what he gets. And so he says, we know, O king, that everything in this empire exists for you and for your profit and pleasure, but these people are doing nothing to profit you, why would you tolerate them? If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now this is an incredible amount of money to Haman ought to offer to bankroll this empire-wide massacre. Scholars tell us that this is over half of the annual revenue of this whole empire. This is too much money for Haman to be able to afford in his own, but the thinking is probably that he's going to use the money from all the plundering of the possessions and the property of the Jews to cover this cost. He is a complete weasel, isn't he? You can almost hear the boos ringing out around the pantomime after he finishes his plea to the king. And in verse 10, the king, who we've seen before, cannot make a decision for himself. He agrees to this request and gives his signet ring to Haman. He doesn't even ask who these people are. He doesn't even ask what they have done to deserve this. He just gives the go-ahead based on what Haman has told him. And in giving his signet ring to Haman, he has basically given Haman limitless authority in the name of the king. He can do what he likes now to these people. You can imagine the smile spreading across Haman's face, rubbing his hands together in glee. He has got exactly what he wanted here. And verse 12 to 15, Haman sets about putting into motion this devious plan. An edict is written to all that Haman commanded. It's passed out throughout all of the empire. Everyone hears about it because it's in everyone's own language. Every man, woman, and child knows what is going to happen on the the one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. It's going to be an annihilation of the Jewish nation. Listen to the overkill in this. Look in verse thirteen. The instructions were given to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. There is going to be nowhere to hide, nowhere to run to. Remember, this kingdom is inescapable. And in eleven months' time, if Haman gets his way, there won't be a single Jew left in this worldly empire. No Mordecai, no mm-hmm. Esther even, all of them will be gone with the rest of God's people. And as the curtain draws at the end of this dark chapter, we read that the city of Susa is thrown into confusion. And Haman and King Ahasuerus, the cold men that they are, they just chink glasses as they sit down for a drink, sit back and relax, having casually decreed the annihilation of an entire nation. It's a chilling story, savage, cruelty, hard to believe if it weren't for modern day stories that we have similar things going on in our world like the Jewish Holocaust or Kosovo, Sudan, Rwanda. It reminds us that this is a real world story, a real life threat for many people in our world, many Christians in our world today even. There are people in this world who hate anyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus. There are literally people in our world today who want to kill, destroy, and annihilate us if we're believers this morning because of our faith in Jesus. It's hard for us to get our head around that, to believe that. But if we were living in other places in the world, like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Eritrea, we would know that that's the truth. We would understand that reality. 4,761 professing Christians killed last year for faith reasons in our world. 13 Christians killed a day for their faith. There is real hatred and hostility towards God's people. And for us, it might not be the threat of death. It probably isn't. But we do experience hatred and hostility at times when we live for Jesus, when we stand for him, when we speak of him to others. It's maybe just a cold shoulder or it's maybe more of a distance from friends, things not being the way they used to. Maybe it's sneering looks or or jibe remarks from our work colleagues. Maybe it's just us being the one who's the butt of all the jokes in our sports team or in our uni class. For Christians living in the kingdom of the world, there are certain things that if we talk about, people will soon turn away from us, reject us and what we have to say, show hostility towards us, talk about what the Bible has to say about marriage, talk about what you believe on the sanctity of human life, talk about men and women being created in the image of God, male and female, and you will soon realize that there is hostility towards the Christian worldview. Life as a follower of Jesus Christ is only gonna get more difficult living in the empire of the world. The tide is turning. It's changing here in Northern Ireland. We should expect hostility and hatred as God's people living in the kingdom of the world, not least because Jesus told us it's gonna be this way. Listen to what he said to his disciples in John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These are difficult words to hear. This is a difficult passage for us to Stomach. And there's a challenge here for us as Christians this morning. As the tide does turn, it leaves us asking the question here, if the world loves us as its own, if we're never facing hostility and hatred in this world, then there are probably some questions that we need to ask of ourselves and our faith and how we're living that out, how we're speaking of Jesus in this world. Are we hiding away Shying away from maybe the difficult conversations out there. It's a dark and it's a chilling end to our story today. And in Esther 2 and 3, we're being forced to see that God, in His providence, He, his providence, he doesn't cushion His people from evil in this world or from, from difficulties in this life. It's a chapter as well that it doesn't resolve the mysteries of how God's sovereignty and how the reality of evil relate to one another. But it, does, it doesn't let us ignore the fact that even the evil of Haman is bounded and directed by God's holy, wise, and powerful governance of this world. God is still in control, even over an evil man like Haman, sovereign, even over the casting of lots, But Esther 3 tells us that precisely because of God's sovereignty, we live in a world of conflict. God's sovereign providence, it it becomes the theater within within which this conflict is taking place. A war being waged, where belonging to the people of God makes us a target. And in order for us to endure as Christians living in the kingdom of the world, there are two things that we must know. Here's the first thing that we must know in order to endure as as Christians living in the kingdom of the world. We must know the nature of the conflict that we are in. We must know the nature of the conflict. This passage helps us to understand why it's so difficult for us in this world. Did you notice that Haman throughout the story is regularly referred to as Haman the Agagite? The writer is tipping us off about something here, something about Haman and about Mordecai, the real reason why Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. It's not a result of jealousy because Mordecai was overlooked by the king. It's also not an ancient ethnic conflict. Here's why Haman wants genocide and not justice. Haman is an Agagite. King Agag was the king of the Amalekites who were the enemy of God. And God, in 1 Samuel 15, he declared a sentence of destruction against the Amalekites. But King Saul, he was the king of God's people at that time, he refused to carry out God's orders fully. He rebelled against what God had said and he left King Agag alive. And eventually later on, we see the prophet Samuel uh, kill King Agag. Haman is a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. Mordecai and Esther, they're from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's the tribe from which King Saul came from. So you can see how there is a a distinction here in the two. There's a a war, a conflict going on here, an age-old conflict, not just between two warring ethnic groups. This is between God's people, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of the world. Between the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3. And the seed of the woman. Between the reign of Jesus Christ. And the reign of Satan. In this world. This is a conflict which began right back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve gave in to the temptations of the serpent in the garden. And this is a conflict which still rages on today. The enemy Behind all of those human faces, like Haman, or Hitler, or Paul Potts, the true enemy who gives voice and action to every evil in our world, behind it all is the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that it's the devil who is our adversary. He is the one prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul in Ephesians, he tells us the nature of the war that we are in as Christians. Why it's so necessary for us to stand firm and to put on the spiritual resources that God has given us in this war. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a war against Satan and his schemes. He hates God's people. He will do anything to see the demise and destruction of the church. He wants to wipe out God's people here in Esther 3 because he knows that if the Jewish nation is completely wiped out, destroyed, and annihilated, then it means that God's chosen Messiah will never come. The one promise, the seed of the woman, will not come to pass. But here's the good news. The good news for us as Christians is that we know the end of this story already. And so we can endure as Christians living in the kingdom of the world because we know the end from the beginning. We've seen the final picture in the great tapestry of redemptive history. God in his word, he has given us the way of seeing the other side of that weaving loom. Because we have seen Jesus. We have seen that the promised Messiah, our Savior, has indeed come. And we know that even though this battle rages on against Satan and all the powers of this darkness, the kingdom of the world, the war has already been won. We know the end of this story. And actually, do you know, when we look back at Esther chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, that part of the story where Mordecai and Esther, they discover the plot to assassinate the king. And they become the saviors for the king. The writer has almost given us the end of the story before we've even begun. He's shown us that Esther and Mordecai will be saviors in this story. Not saviors for the king, as they were there. But saviors for God's people. The only ones in the position to save them from this evil plan of Haman. And today, as we stand as God's people, we're in a different position from Esther and Mordecai. Not just in this story as we read back, but in history as well. Today, as God's people, we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. We know that Jesus Christ has come. The cross is the place where Jesus experienced the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. He died in the place of sinful men and women. He took the punishment that we deserve, even though he was the sinless son of God, innocent. The cross is the place where Jesus experienced the hatred and the hostility of this world from the very people he came to save as a way of him demonstrating his love and his grace towards us. The cross is the place where it seemed that Satan and all his powers of evil had won the victory as Jesus Christ breathed his final breath and said, it is finished. All appeared lost in God's sovereign plan. But we know that the cross is the place where our salvation and redemption was born. Because out of the grave, three days later, Jesus Christ rose to life again, triumphant over sin and death, victorious over sin, uh, over Satan, and breaking the powers of evil and darkness forever, providing the way for God's people to be brought back into relationship with Him again and to experience glory forever in eternity. The cross was where Satan and all the powers of evil threw everything they had at God one final time trying to derail his salvation plan. But it wasn't enough. God's good and perfect plans for his people can never be thwarted. We live today knowing the end from the beginning. And as we look to Jesus, we know that we can trust in God's sovereign providence We can believe that our salvation is secure. We can keep in mind where God is leading us in life. That is how we keep going and pressing on to the end. No matter how difficult and dark the circumstances are that we might be in. As the darkness descends and the suffering comes in. As we experience injustices and hatred in this world. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We look to the finish, to that glorious, promised future purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you're a Christian this morning, whatever you're going through, keep your eyes on the end, and you will be able to endure the means by which God leads you there. That's what we see Jesus Christ doing. In Hebrews 12, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We are locked in a real spiritual battle. But we know what the humans of this world do not know. We know who is on the throne. We know who is in charge. We know how this story ends. Because we know that the war has already been won. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has died and risen to life again. He sits on his throne in heaven, living today. And one day he will return to bring all conflicts and all the suffering that we experience, he will bring it to an end. On that day, he will bring in his new heavens and his new earth, and he will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. Let's keep the finish, the end in sight as we seek to press on to the end. And if you're not a Christian this morning, well, you've maybe been wondering as you've sat here, what does all this mean for me? Because I know I've spoken mostly this morning in our passage to those who have put their faith in Jesus and trust in him. But there is something for you in this story. There is a way of finding yourself in here. Because if we're wondering about our life and our purpose, and what will become of us here in this earth, we can know the final picture. We can know what will become of our lives when we breathe our final breath here in this earth. We may not know what the journey there will look like. We know that it's not going to be an easy life if we put our trust in Jesus. It doesn't guarantee that. But what it does guarantee is glory forever and eternity being with our Savior Jesus forever. And it guarantees us as well joy each day as we trust in God's providence, as he leads us and guides us and sustains us till we get there. There is times in our lives whenever we maybe look at the back of that, we look at our lives and we're looking at the back of that loom, wondering what is going on, what is God doing Esther is a book teaching us to trust in the providence of God and his good and perfect plans for his people. Let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you that even in difficult passages like this, even in sobering realities like this, Lord, you are reminding us of your goodness, of your grace, of your mercy. You're reminding us that you're the one who is in charge, that you're in control of this world. And even though we might not know what each day is going to bring, what our lives are going to look like, we know what the finish line looks like. We know what the final picture is. We see Jesus on the throne. High and lifted up, our Savior, our Lord, the one who will return and will take his people to glory, to be with him forever. We thank you that even in passages like this, we can see just glimpses and reminders of your providence, your sovereign grace. Lord, I pray if we're followers of Jesus this morning, that even as we face difficulties and challenges in this world, as we have to endure hostility and hatred from others maybe, that we'll continue to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who shows us how to continue to live lives of faithfulness and obedience to you, to trust you in your perfect plans. And if there's any here who are not yet believers in Jesus, have not put their faith and their trust in him, Lord, I pray that they'll be able to find today in this story of Esther They'll be able to look and define themselves there as those who are in need of a savior. God's people who um, we see here are are facing this destruction. That is all of us. We are facing destruction for our sinfulness. We need a savior. We are desperately in need of Jesus. And so today I pray that we will turn to Jesus and put our trust in him. No life in him. The joy that there is of being brought back into relationship with you again the grace that there is to sustain us throughout all of our lives here on earth and the glory that awaits us whenever we will see Jesus face to face. So we pray all these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.